0: Rootslandnation.com We're your culture. Culture 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 Culture, culture. culture. The Guys Righteousness Governor Broadcasting Live and Direct from the Rolling Red Hills on the outskirts of Kingston, Jamaica from a magical place at the intersection of words, sound, and power. The red light is on. Your dial is set. The frequency in tune to the Rootsland podcast. Stories that are music to your ears. The gentle Caribbean breeze blew through the open windows of my rental car, and the ocean salt mixed with the aroma of aki and saltfish being cooked at the restaurant next to where I was parked. I sat quietly, listening to the sound of the waves, caressing the jagged coast. Little caves and porous nooks would swallow the seawater. And when the tide rolled back, it sounded like the fizz of Coca-Cola being poured over ice. It was making me thirsty. Behind the restaurant, a small collection of a dozen or so unassuming cliffside villas, sporadically dotted across the property all with views overlooking the turquoise water. In one of the bungalows, Chris Blackwell, founder and president of Island Records, which he had recently sold to Polygram Entertainment for half a billion dollars, a deal that kept Blackwell in charge of Island, put him on the board of Polygram, and made him the world's richest music executive. By contrast, there I stood at his front door, a 25-year-old entry-level t-shirt salesman Anxiously awaiting a chance to break into the music business. Full of ideas and optimism. About to come face-to-face with one person capable of making it all happen. What could possibly go wrong? I fight in club, you know. I'm really a hammer This guy, he's the best. And uh, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't such, be, such, be a good, such a good fight. It's not that Mr. Blackwell wanted to meet me. Or had any idea who I was. It was as random as him finding out that one of his employees from the New York office was in Jamaica attending the Marley festivities, and him needing some paperwork to be taken back up to Manhattan. The company was notoriously cheap, hated spending money on shipping, and FedEx fees were excessively high from the Caribbean. And after all, why should they spend money on shipping when they have human couriers on the payroll? Their frugal business practice turned out to be my chance of a lifetime. The expression chance of a lifetime is overused. Like the last line of a tacky local car commercial. Or what you hear from a scam caller from Lagos, Nigeria. Most people don't realize they even had a chance of a lifetime until it's long gone. Like seeing a shooting star. It's a fortuitous moment that travels through the universe and may never present itself again. Moments like this define a person, separate the winners built to rise to these occasions and handle the pressure from people like me, ready to walk away after a few feeble knocks at the door of opportunity and no answer. Truth be told, I couldn't help thinking about my last chance of a lifetime. It didn't go, didn't so, go well. so well. One of these days is the thing that I want it was in Jamaica back when I was working with Bob Andy. At the time, he was the creative director for Tuff helping them to rebuild their brand. That was just a part-time gig. His full-time job, being the greatest living songwriter in Jamaican music. I had spent months hinting that I was also a songwriter and wanted him to hear my poems. I wasn't overbearing, but I was pretty persistent. Everywhere I went, I carried around my retro leather and burlap briefcase given to me by my father. Inside was a yellow legal pad with a dozen poems written out with a thin black sharpie. There they sat, waiting for the moment when Bob Andy was ready to listen. One day after work, we had a session scheduled at the studio where Bob was producing various artists signed to the Tuff Gong label as well as working on his own album. The prior session was running late It was Julian Marley, recording his debut album for the label. Julian was one of about a dozen of Bob Marley's kin who followed in the footsteps of their father, becoming reggae performers. All great in their own right, yet none even close to matching the unrivaled talent of their legendary father. A good lesson in nature versus nurture. While we were waiting for the studio to open up, Bob Andy sat across from me in the Tuff Gong Lounge, the late afternoon inching its way towards dusk. A noisy ceiling fan slowly turned. It gave no relief to the Kingston heat. It just recirculated the same hot air. Every few seconds I could feel tremors from the bass line, escaping from the adjacent studio. So, Kirill, you mentioned that you had some songs for me to hear. I guess now is a good time, isn't it? Do you have something with you? As soon as Bob said he was ready to hear my songs... My heart sank. I wasn't sure if it was nerves or the vibrations from the music next door, but my whole body was shaking. My trusted briefcase, never far, sat right on my lap. Yet, I hesitated, pretended as if I wasn't sure I had the poems with me. I was ready to back out, afraid Bob wouldn't like them. Still, I couldn't pass up this opportunity. A chance for the revered songwriter to critique my work. I fumbled around, clumsily unsnapping the buckles on the briefcase. Staring inside, at its sole content. A lonely legal pad, with all my dreams spelled out on its pages. I think I may have a few here, Bob, if you're ready. I'll read you a couple. Okay, you go on, I'm ready. Okay, I'm going to start with a song called We the People. Basically, it's my take on the Iran-Contra affair. As you know, that's the big political scandal of the moment in D.C. Yes, I follow the news. It's really turned me off from politics. And politicians. You do know what they say about our politicians. What's that? We usually get what we deserve. So true. Carrio, go ahead. <clears throat> okay. We the People by Henry Carrio. I'll take the midnight flight to Costa Rica. The morning boat to Nicaragua. Meet my friend the Contra. Play a little game of gotcha. Say that it's in the name of We the People. Sign the bill for the plane in the name of We the People. Is it We the People, We the People, in order to form a more perfect union? Or We the People, We the People, in order to reform an imperfect union? Not sure if we know who's leading. And the time to save this thing is fleeting. They don't want us writing, and they don't want us reading. They want we the people playing games, while democracy is bleeding. Before going on to the next verse, I decided to take a quick peek at my audience, to see Bob's face. I wanted to get a read one way or the other of how he liked it so far. Big mistake. Bob Andy was out cold, fast asleep. I'm talking deep REM cycle, heavy snore. It hadn't even been 30 seconds since I started reading it. I couldn't believe this. It was humiliating. In retrospect, I suppose it's exactly what I deserved. A pretentious wannabe songwriter from the suburbs with zero experience in life. Pestering an accomplished songwriter like Bob Andy to hear my poems. A man whose catalog contains soulful recollections of the indignities of ghetto life and being abandoned as a child by the people he loved. Him falling asleep in the middle of my first verse was the pitch-perfect reaction, an unintentional bitch slap from a music legend that taught me more about expectations in the music business in five minutes than in all my previous years of rejections. I was crushed that afternoon. I didn't mention my songs to Bob again that entire trip. What made things worse? Neither did he. Mr. Blackwell, Mr. Blackwell hides Henry from Island. From Island Trading in New York? Mr. Blackwell, you can come in. The door's open. Chris Blackwell sat on his couch and slowly came into view as the smoke from his last ganja hit dissipated. A lit spliff dangled in the ashtray next to him. His Robert Redford blonde quaff, windblown from the North Coast breeze that was coming through the villa's open window shutters. Tan and weathered like a Scandinavian alpine climber, he was casually dressed in a blue denim shirt, khaki shorts, and flip-flops. Mellow and glassy-eyed, Mr. Blackwell sat back with his arms extended on top of the pillows on either side of him, like royalty. I felt I should have entered with a carafe of wine or bearing fresh grapes. He offered no handshake, just leaned forward and handed me a sealed manila envelope. So, what exactly is it that you do for me? What exactly do I do for him? If anyone else asked, it would have come off as condescending, especially in a stuffy British boarding school accent. But coming from Mr. Blackwell, with a deadpan delivery, it was actually quite endearing. An innocent question from a man that runs an empire so vast that he has no idea of what half the people who work for him even do. He seemed to authentically want to know. And I was ready to tell him. I took a deep breath before answering, careful to choose my words wisely. What do you say? When suddenly, a distraction. I heard the sound of footsteps coming down the circular staircase in the living room. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw a set of brown-toned legs and high heels that was making the noise. Oh my God, little Henry! Little Henry, is that you? It was Mary Vincent, Chris's fiancée. I couldn't believe it. She was calling me Little Henry. This was a disaster. You know Little Henry? He's your T-shirt guy, I tell you. T-shirt guy? This was awful. I mean, I was the T-shirt guy. But I was also so much more. At least, that's what I was ready to tell Mr. Blackwell. Until Mary stepped in. She came over and gave me a big hug and a kiss on the cheek. He's going to be the next Chris Blackwell. (laughs) So, what brings you to Jamaica? Why why are you down here? I looked over my shoulder at my boss. His red eyes cleared up. I could see he was thinking the same thing. What is my t-shirt guy doing in Jamaica? And why am I paying him to grope my fiancé in my living room? Mary sat down next to Chris and put her hand on his leg. They both stared up at me, waiting for me to answer. Waiting for me to say something. Anything? What What was I doing in Jamaica? What exactly did I do for Ireland? I was drawing a complete blank. Had nothing. I was out of material. Mike Tyson once said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. Well, Mary Vincent knocked me down to the canvas, and I couldn't get back up. Everything was a blur until I was back in the car and looked over and saw the manila envelope on the passenger seat. Back at the hotel when I described what happened, Kush thought it was the funniest thing he ever heard. He told me it was a sign that I wasn't meant to work for Island. When Kush finally stopped laughing, he gave me a message from Doreen at Bob Marley Music in New York, who called the room while I was out. Apparently they needed their courier, to make another pickup before heading back to the States. This time I was excited to hear I'd be seeing a friendly face. The Queen herself, Rita Marley, had a signed contract that needed to go up to the lawyers in Manhattan. She was at a nearby hotel, right across from the White River Reggae Park, where the show was going to be held later that evening. I had been so discouraged by my early encounter with Mr. Blackwell, I was thinking about blowing off the concert. Suddenly I had a feeling of renewed energy. Maybe seeing Mrs. Marley would lift my spirits. Sister Rita was staying at a private villa on the hotel premises. There were a handful of rosters chilling out front on her balcony. A tall, slim dread by the door seemed to be standing guard. He was concentrating on rolling a joint, sprinkling the herb into the paper. As I got close, he paused and looked at me, annoyed for breaking his concentration. I told him I was there to pick up something from Mrs. Morley. He didn't say a word, just nodded his head towards the door, granting me permission to enter. Then he went back to his spliff. Everything about the villa felt dated. The 70s-style white wicker furniture, the tile floors, the long, bright floral drapes and matching bedspreads, the uninspired artwork intended to relax and decompress the room's usual guests stressed-out American tourists. The only thing in the room that wasn't dated was today's occupant, the Queen of Reggae, the matriarch and leader of the mighty Marley clan, Sister Rita. In the years since I worked for her out of college, she had overcome what most saw as insurmountable obstacles, a windfall of personal and business setbacks that at one point even saw her late husband's estate stolen from her by a biased judicial system determined to break her. In what was a battle to the death, Sister Rita was the last woman standing. And she still is, as she maintains control of Bob's lucrative estate. A position that didn't come easy, and in order to overcome competing bids from rival companies all vying for ownership of the Marley estate, Sister Rita entered into what some called an unholy alliance with Island Records founder Chris Blackwell whose company owned Bob's best-selling records and most profitable songs. It was an uneasy relationship, and if you ask people like Brian and Kush, they will say that Blackwell exploited Sister Rita, who had nowhere else to turn in her battle. She had the Marley name, and he had the Marley money. I guess you could call it a quid quo pro. pro Or maybe not. Hey, Mrs. Marley, how are you? Remember me? I'm Henry. I worked at Tough Gong back in the day for Bob Andy when he was creative director. Of course, Henry. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Has it been that long? It's been a lifetime. Janu, the time moves so swiftly. Mrs. Marley gave me a big smile and a hug. She looked confused as to why I was there. Doreen sent me. She said you had a contract that needed to be taken back to the office in New York. Doreen sent you? Yeah. From the New York office. That's where you are these days. I figured you knew. Mrs. Marley recoiled, and her smile went blank. She didn't know I worked for Island Trading, and I can see she was hurt. A woman who spent her life masking her feelings momentarily revealed her disappointment. She so generously let me into her private and guarded world and now looked at me as if I betrayed her. Like I squandered the chance. Or worse, I was working for the other side. The wrong side. I guess I had been so focused on getting ahead, climbing the corporate ladder, that I never even took the time to really look around. If I had, I would have noticed. I wasn't going anywhere. She handed me the contract I was tasked to courier her back up to the office in New York and gripped it tight, making it difficult for me to take. So Henry, I guess this means you work for Chris Blackwell, no? No, Sister Rita. I work for Bob Marley now. And forever. Sister Rita didn't smile. Instead, she gave me a deep, penetrating gaze. A look frozen in time. Like a mafia don gives a newly made man after they first become a soldier in the Cosa Nostra. A silent, confident stare accepting my allegiance. A vow I didn't even know I was making. Still, that couldn't take away from the authenticity of the words that so effortlessly poured out. Words I was at a loss to find. Just hours earlier at Chris Blackwell's home. You see... Being in the presence of this powerful, iconic woman gave me the strength to face my reality, my truth. I had wanted so badly to make it, to be successful in the music business. I lost sight of what success was, if I ever knew. Maybe it's an illusion, a distant dream, like me fantasizing about being Chris Blackwell, a billionaire music mogul living on an exotic island with a beautiful girlfriend. But seeing Mrs. Marley again reminded me of something. She reminded me that in life, we're faced with so many choices, so many decisions, it gets confusing. We choose where we go and what we do and even how we do it. But there's one thing that's decided for us and that is who we are. Long before we're born, brought into this universe, a higher power gives us a soul. And with that soul, A purpose, something unique that no one else is capable of doing. It's the very reason we're here. Even though I was no closer to figuring out what mine was, at least I knew what it wasn't. Sometimes life is a process of elimination. Process of elimination is a method to identify an entity of interest among several ones by excluding all other entities. The process does not guarantee success. Rootsland Podcast is produced by Henry Kane Association with Vicebox Studios. Remember to like, share, and subscribe, and please support our show by downloading the Rootsland Original Soundtrack, available on Amazon, iTunes, or wherever you purchase music. Don't worry about a thing, because every little thing... Go and be alright Henry K Productions